Isomorphic pressures, epistemic communities, and state NGO collaboration in China. By Riza Hazmath and Jennifer Su. Section 1 Introduction. The number of non governmental organizations, also known as NGOs, in China has increased dramatically in the past two decades. NGOs now operate in a spectrum of activities ranging from education, poverty alleviation, community development, the environment, and health, and offer a variety of services and support for marginalized groups in Chinese society. In effect, NGOs in China have the capacity to be alternate social service providers and have generally proven to be effective at this task when they are provided with the space to operate. In this backdrop, the local state has experienced a strain on its finances, which has consequently reduced its ability to deliver social services to its constituents. The restructuring of state-owned enterprises, SOEs, a shedding of social welfare responsibilities, and fiscal decentralization have all contributed to an increasing financial burden on cash-strapped local state authorities in terms of social welfare provisions. This study seeks to answer the meta-question. Why do we witness low levels of voluntary collaboration between the local state and NGOs in China? It seems that greater collaboration between the local state and NGOs would be advantageous for both parties. It would simultaneously alleviate the local state's burden to address a number of social concerns. Moreover, it will allow NGOs who have the resources and capacity to engage with the relevant social problems and issues. Suffice to say, the on-the-ground reality suggests that this form of collaboration between the local state and NGOs in China has been rather minimal. To explain this paradox, the academic literature is divided into two camps. The first explanation for low levels of collaboration between the local state and NGOs is attributed to the domination and the strength of the central state, which effectively seeks to control the NGO sector through restrictive regulations rather than partner with it. Whether overtly or not, the majority of the literature has contributed to this argument by suggesting a strong central state that seeks to continuously manage and control the NGO sector. The second line of explanations can be attributed to organizational differences between the two sectors. The major premise here is that the organizational forms and goals of both sectors are divergent, and as such, dissuades the building of mutual trust or the potential for a credible catalyst to incentivize one or both parties to cooperate towards a common goal. While we do not question the validity of either camps, Neither one fully answer why local state authorities continue to resist and or remain indifferent to the advances of Chinese NGOs, despite the opportunities that are present in collaborative efforts. While the central state is an active force in the development of the NGO sector, as illustrated in the various rules and regulations that have been issued by the Ministry of Civil Affairs, MCA, it is at the local state level where the majority of meaningful interactions occur between the state and NGOs. 
Given that NGOs are relatively new to the social landscape in China, it is prudent to test whether the Chinese NGO sector has matured sufficiently to become part of an epistemic community, whereby their knowledge or expertise can be used as reference points by the local state. Furthermore, if the argument is that NGOs are organizationally distinct from the local state, it will be worthwhile to examine whether NGOs will eventually succumb to isomorphic pressures, that is, pressures that overtly or tacitly force NGOs to adopt similar structures and behaviors, such as coercive pressures due to the regulatory environment, mimetic pressures due to the uncertainty in the social space to effectively operate, and normative pressures that would eventually arise from a convergence of attitudes, norms, and approaches through the professionalization of Chinese NGOs. Coiled in this background, this study seeks to understand local-state NGO interactions through an analysis of the strategies and methods that are utilized to establish collaboration between both parties. It will probe into the interactive role that various isomorphic pressures and epistemic awareness plays in determining whether or not NGOs collaborate, or to what extent they collaborate with the local state, and vice versa. The current study will seek to move beyond strategies of engagement between the local state and NGOs. Notably, in the final two sections, we will focus on the role of epistemic awareness of NGOs by local authorities, and further, how NGOs are developing to become a community of experts, which is a potential requisite for further engagement with the local state. Section 2. Methodology and Sample The study will focus on the Beijing and Shanghai cases by drawing upon fieldwork conducted between late 2011 and mid-2012. The underlying speculation is that Beijing, as the capital, may present unique challenges to local officials in their collaboration, or lack thereof, with NGOs. The municipal government of Shanghai, on the other hand, has cultivated networks with selected NGOs. In addition, Shanghai's municipal government has become a stronger voice in Shanghai's development policy in comparison to Beijing where the top-down model of governance continues to prevail in the capital city, thereby leaving little room for local innovation or experimentation. The more innovation form of policymaking within Shanghai's government ranks is reflected at the community level where local NGOs are given greater leeway to experiment and encourage citizen participation in community projects. Using a random, purposeful sampling technique, 28 NGOs were interviewed, 15 in Beijing, and 13 in Shanghai. The overall sample represents a good cross-section of NGOs' material power. For example, their size, budget, and ability to acquire more resources. Symbolic power, for example, their ability to have legitimacy in their statements. Interpretive power, for example, their ability to bring expertise to the form and interpret social facts, and geographical power, for example, whether they are local, regional, or national-based. The NGOs interviewed have a budget between 1,590 U.S. dollars to 6.35 million U.S. dollars per annum, 
with the average NGO interviewed having a budget of $78,283 U.S. dollars per annum. Most NGOs interviewed have secured their financial resources with the aid of a mix of domestic and international funding support. One NGO, Peace for Humanity, remains entirely self-funded by its founder. The NGOs in the sample have an arithmetic mean of 8.5 years of operation in China, with a range between 2 to 19 years. Nearly half of our NGOs are registered with an accompanying government sponsoring agency, and the other half are registered as businesses. The majority of the NGOs interviewed were engaged in service delivery work to marginalized populations, from migrant workers to children and the elderly, and community development. There are three NGOs in our sample that assisted the development of smaller and newer NGOs by providing training and workshops. In sum, the primary sectors of operation for our sample include education, 18, health, 8, migrants, 8, environment, 8, gender, 7, welfare, 6, media, 2, culture, 1, connecting charities, 1, fundraising, 1, and training, 1. While the interviews do not offer a national sample, they do provide a depiction of the increasing involvement of the local state in the work and efforts of NGOs in two of China's most important cities. Section 3. Neo-Institutional Theory and Isomorphic Pressures The strength of isomorphic pressures for NGOs is contingent upon the environment in which they operate. According to neo-institutional theorists, organizations that occupy a shared sector will eventually begin to copy one another due to coercive, mimetic, and normative pressures. A key element of institutional theory is the belief that organizations sharing the same environment will employ similar practices and thus become isomorphic with each other. In the classic formulation of isomorphic pressures, DiMaggio and Powell posit that 1. Coercive isomorphism stems from political influence and the problem of legitimacy. 2. Mimetic isomorphism results from standard responses to uncertainty. And 3. Normative isomorphism is associated with professionalization. Isomorphism is in the context of NGOs, thus refers to the different factors affecting the development of organizations in similar shape, structure, or form. Put differently, coercive pressures can be displayed by examining the impact of state regulation on the behavior of an NGO. For example, regulations in China forbid NGOs from conducting public fundraising. This ultimately forces NGOs to mostly rely on private and institutional donations, which often accompany certain stipulations that alter NGOs' behavior. Mimetic isomorphism has a tendency to occur in an uncertain environment, where organizations will begin to copy successful models as a mechanism for coping with changeable conditions. By copying, NGOs are able to quickly establish legitimacy without having to build a repertoire of practices, which can be time-consuming without necessarily leading to any tangible outcomes. 
This is particularly pronounced in the case of China, where the environment for NGOs can oscillate depending on state behavior. NGOs' acquiescence is also a likely strategy that can lead to an economic gain as well as legitimacy. Finally, normative isomorphism emerges when similar attitudes and approaches lead to homogeneity, often the result of hiring practices that stress like educational achievements or inter-hiring between existing organizations. Normative pressures are often brought about by the desire to professionalize, which can lead to greater homogeneity of the NGO sector. The strength in utilizing neo-institutional theory to understand NGO behavior lies in the fact that it is able to explain why organizations adopt certain practices, mundane or complex, in environments where they have little influence to reject said practices. Chinese NGOs generally operate in a relatively singular institutional environment, whereby competing logics do not cause contestation, and thus much variation in institutional designs. Organizational change with regards to NGOs in China is particularly dependent on the political environment and the power of institutional actors in their support or opposition to change. We argue that the political environment and power the state exerts will have different effects on the NGO sector. It can lead to coercive, mimetic, and normative isomorphic pressures. We believe that the puzzle is not only the nature of the state, strong slash weak per se, but the institutional environment created in which NGOs must navigate as a result of state power. Thus, we seek to build upon organizational theory as it applies to NGOs to comprehend the present and future development of the Chinese NGO sector. Section 4. The Institutional Environment and Collaborative Measures Notwithstanding the increasing quantity and diversity of the NGO sector in Beijing and Shanghai, coercive pressures are prevalent due to the existing regulatory environment that manages NGOs. Officially, all NGOs are required to be registered with the Ministry of Civil Affairs, in addition to having a willing department or leading unit to sponsor the organization. Given that there are minimal incentives for government departments or units to take on extra administrative work that is required to sponsor an NGO, and a strong disincentive of being liable in the event of an NGO becoming troublesome for the state's objectives, it is not surprising that government sponsorship is difficult to secure. This is to the extent that many NGOs are prevented from completing registration at this step. In the situation where an NGO has compiled with the dual registration process, all NGO decisions are technically required to be approved by the sponsoring agency, and NGOs must provide annual financial reports to the MCA. This effectively means that the autonomy of the organization is eroded and, in the long run, will incentivize the NGO sector to forge practices in a homogenized fashion to ensure a high degree of predictability for the state. Many organizations avoid this lengthy bureaucratic process 
by registering as a for-profit commercial or business entity with the Bureau of Industry and Commerce. Furthermore, since the 2004 Regulations on the Administration of Foundations, organizations can be formed through private initiatives and still undertake tasks that have once been considered public. Such for-profit organizations cannot officially establish regional or branch offices, which, in effect, reduces the chances for an organization to scale up their services and establish geographic power. Moreover, only one type of each organization may be established in any given region. Despite this situation, such organizations essentially operate and present themselves as NGOs. This suggests that coercive pressures prevail irrespective of whether organizations are officially registered as an NGO, commercial business entity, or foundation. That is to say, the state's management system will direct some NGOs to channel their efforts into areas the state finds most acceptable in any case. The regulatory environment for NGOs in China contribute to maintaining social stability by keeping out those organizations that the government perceives as a threat and minimizing the size and strength of the NGO sector, which in turn may limit NGOs' collaborative efforts with the local state. Suffice to say, efforts to launch collaborative projects between the local state and NGOs in Beijing and Shanghai are limited. Although collaboration offers both parties, the state and NGO, an opportunity to pool material, symbolic, interpretive, and geographical resources, the local state rarely engages in voluntary collaborative efforts, except when the local state is familiar and knowledgeable of a specific individual NGO project. For instance, Beijing NGOs such as Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center, Facilitators, Tongyu, and the Shining Stone Community Action have been established at least since the early 2000s, 1993 for Beijing Cultural Heritage. Their continued existence and operation in Beijing suggests that their longevity has made some impact in garnering opportunities to work with local authorities. All four NGOs have maintained collaborative projects with Beijing's local authorities rather than an on-again, off-again situation, which often characterizes the local state NGO experience. The case in Shanghai is also similar in that it is the older NGOs, Laquan and Grassroots Community, that have managed to conduct projects with the involvement of local authorities. For the aforementioned NGOs, one main method of sustaining contact and collaboration with local municipal authorities is to mobilize their material power and market their services to the city. After nearly 10 years of working with migrant communities in Beijing, facilitators and Tongyu have managed to secure municipal commitment to purchase services since 2010. While these two NGOs have collaborated with local authorities in the past on specific projects, for example, facilitators worked with the Center for Disease Control in 2003 during SARS, it is support from local authorities for their ad hoc programs and the ability to build up an organizational and work history 
that has enabled such NGOs to continue to collaborate to present day. Similarly, Lequin, which focuses on providing services to the youth and migrant communities, has found success in maintaining its collaboration with municipal authorities through contract-based work. Whether or not the above strategy translates to projecting an increased level of mimetic pressures is another narrative. The evidence suggests that while the four NGOs have copied a successful model to market their services, they have done so without awareness of each other's tactics. Granted, the modeled organization may be unaware of their potential mimetic activity in this respect, or the models of success may be diffused unintentionally through employee transfer slash turnover or via trade associations. However, this is not a possibility that can be entertained given that, to reiterate, one, they have no direct awareness of each other's work and have self-reported little to no awareness of other NGOs' activities, two, they are working in completely different sectors of operation and as such have little chance of unintentional contact that may lead to copying tactics, and three, they rarely experience employee transfers from other NGOs. Uncertainties in the institutional environment and their relationship with local government have led them to develop an independently derived, pragmatic approach to market their material power to local authorities. Interestingly, this tactic becomes difficult to execute given that local government often have not achieved sufficient knowledge or epistemic awareness of NGOs' potential capacity, as the next section suggests. Seemingly, such finding may appear to challenge a neo-institutional framework. Our findings from Beijing and Shanghai suggest that while NGOs still operate within a particular institutional environment, which may be corporatist in nature, they are, still, they are yet to be creative and innovative to the extent that they can mitigate the impacts of the environment. Even when epistemic awareness has been achieved by local government, some NGOs have experienced competition with local authorities in delivering social welfare services. The representative for the Shanghai-based NGO, UF, explains that it is not unusual for the government to steal the ideas and programs of small, successful NGOs. For example, Shantou, a successful NGO that sells goods over the internet for charities, has faced competition from Shanpin, a government-organized NGO, in other words, a gongo. Shanpin has benefited from government backing and contacts, and as a result, has managed to secure the financial support from large corporations such as KBMG. Shantao's representative believes that the poaching of such ideas may be detrimental for smaller NGOs that are unable to compete with bigger NGOs and gongos with greater material and geographic powers. The interview with Shantao's representative confirms a level of wariness towards government officials. When they, the government, do not come up with creative solutions or think of solutions on their own, but instead borrow the ideas of other NGOs to implement their programs, 
This not only fails to increase the growth of creativity in our society, more importantly, it reduces the willingness of social organizations to come up with new and creative solutions and constrains the integration of resources in society and grassroots organizations. This is what makes it frightening. The representative for Shantou indicates that interactions with the government officials can be hazardous, not only for individual NGOs, but for the sector as a whole, due to the fear that idea poaching reduces incentives to be innovative and ultimately reduces the NGO's potential interpretive power. From a different lens, although the borrowing of successful practices or ideas may be a positive example of organizational or policy-based learning, what is challenging for the NGOs in this study is the possibility of being squeezed out by larger and better-funded government-backed NGOs. This competition can strangle any future innovation on the part of smaller, grassroots NGOs. Competition from the local government is one obstacle that NGOs have to contend with, but threat of absorption is another hazard. In its early years, Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center had to stave off government attempts to co-opt and absorb the NGO into existing government structures that work in the area of cultural heritage. Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center has been approached by local officials to become part of their government branch, like a gongo, which we refused. Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center has managed to maintain its independence and perhaps it is due to previous experiences of being subject to co-optation that the representative now emphasizes that the NGO does not collaborate with local authorities. Instead, they work beside them. Some NGOs have not been so fortunate to ward off incorporation by the government. The representative of Les Ples recounts the experience of the free lunch program created by journalist Deng Fei, Via the internet platform, Deng had been able to solicit substantial donations from the public to provide free lunch to needy school children across the nation. Deng's success had since attracted the attention of the government. And according to the representative of Les Places, Deng's initiative had been eaten up sick by one of the branches of the government and turned into a government program. Small and potentially successful NGOs are vulnerable government incorporation. Nevertheless, not all NGOs are so pessimistic with regards to the government. In rare cases, NGOs can be seen as a vehicle for government authorities to project certain images or messages to both domestic and international audiences. China Dialogue's representative believes that when the Chinese government requires their message to be broad broadcasted, and taken seriously by the international media, NGOs provide a voice for the government to achieve this aim, or, in effect, tap into their potential symbolic power. Consequently, local NGOs have lent legitimacy to the government where the situation demands it. The government's interactions with the international media and NGOs have also proved beneficial for smaller NGOs such as Tongyu, which has been able to source funding from the larger China AIDS Foundation, 
Agongo, which receives financial support from the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, on the condition that they involve local NGOs in their initiatives. The representative of Tongyu believes that the situation would be very different if they, the Gongo, didn't need to fill this quota. Here, we see the institutional environment changing for NGOs due to the involvement of the international community, to which the government has had little recourse but to respond. It is through the government's response that we see space opening up for local NGOs to conduct their projects. The institutional environment is evolving, and we see that NGOs both benefit from and face risks of government incorporation. In the case of a changing institutional environment, interactions with government do not occur through the actions of NGOs, but as a result of external forces and the government proactively identifying certain NGOs on the path to success. We see in the case of Beijing and Shanghai that the coercive isomorphism is dominant. However, we also witness mimetic isomorphism, where NGOs like Shanpin have adopted similar organizational functions to establish legitimacy. While those in the NGO sector have accused Shanpin for stealing the idea of their NGO counterpart, it is interesting to note that even government-backed NGOs require legitimacy beyond state support. In either case, it would appear that coercive and mimetic isomorphism occurs almost in tandem with each other in the context of China. Section 5. The Epistemic Awareness of NGOs by the Local State NGOs that have reported difficulties in establishing collaborative opportunities have portrayed local authorities as lacking trust and knowledge of the sector. For Beijing's Green Earth Volunteers, local officials are always invited to their monthly talk. However, the majority of these invitations are declined. The representative for Green Earth Volunteers doubts whether local authorities have any incentive to use their symbolic or interpretive powers other than to promote GDP growth as career promotion in local government often places significant emphasis on economic development. Focusing on economic growth often marginalizes other issues such as the environment and prevents local authorities from taking the time to fully utilize the capacity of the NGO sector. Shanghai's Green Oasis a conservation-focused NGO, faces this situation. As the Green Oasis representative recalls, there is not much collaboration with the local government. The only time was 2010 when the local government gave us some funds for an activity involving the elderly. Having a program targeting the elderly seems incongruent with the general environmental conservation aims of the NGO. Nonetheless, it does suggest that ad hoc programs that attune to the priorities of the local state and pitched as such by the NGO have a greater chance of securing the collaboration of the local state. Green Oasis's representative further notes that local officials know of the existence of the NGO, but their focus is elsewhere where the perceived needs are greater. Less than half of our NGO interviewees believe that knowledge levels of the local authorities in Beijing and Shanghai 
have improved with regards to the NGO sector, whereas more than half of the interviewees suggest that the knowledge levels and trust for NGOs are still very low. How can we explain a seemingly contradictory perspective? Based on the collaborative interaction between NGOs and the local state, we can conclude that knowledge of individual NGOs have improved, but that this knowledge is difficult to extrapolate to the wider sector. Given that it is difficult and politically unwise for NGOs to form alliances, thereby reducing opportunities to amass geographical power, smaller and newer NGOs will have greater challenges in gaining the intention and support for, of local officials. The well-established NGOs, with relatively longer organizational histories, will likely have a near monopoly on potential collaborative partnerships with the local state. Where there is collaboration between the smaller and newer NGOs, it tends to be at an ad hoc level and rarely lasts beyond a single project. The interviewees have indicated that such circumstances usually occur in individual cases that the local authorities have identified as needy. Thus, the knowledge level of the NGO sector is also dependent on the local authorities' awareness of certain social issues and the degree of importance that is assigned to these issues. The interviews suggest that the greater state collaboration and epistemic awareness of NGOs by the local state will be achieved through the professionalization of NGOs, a signifier of normative isomorphic change. Professionalization in the context of this study essentially refers to having established a respected organizational identity alongside a continuation and expansion of its service provisions to relevant constituents. Seemingly, normative pressures to homogenize come from the similar attitudes and approaches through the process of professionalization. The representative for China Youth Climate Action Network note that local authorities are more willing to grant collaboration once NGOs have developed professional capacity and gained the approval of the wider community. A number of NGOs further clarified the meaning of professional capacity as the capacity to provide services. A representative from Shanghai's New Citizen Life Center echoes this sentiment, expressing the opportunities to work with the local authorities will occur when the NGO is seen to contribute a service to the population. This may prove problematic for nearly half of the NGOs sampled, as they lack geographical power and financial resources, material power, to sustain momentum on the projects that they are currently engaged with. With 13 of the 28 NGOs interviewed operating on a budget of less than $20,000 per annum, establishing trust and professionalization through service provision will be severely hampered. China Association for NGO Cooperation's representative reinforces this challenge. Many of the local NGOs are very small and don't have a lot of capacity or are not very professional. What is interesting to observe is the number of NGO representatives that equates service provision and the added value of the NGO as a determinant factor to potential collaborations with the local state. 
On the local level, the government needs to see the added value of an NGO. This evaluation is echoed by Beijing's facilitators. What is very important is that an NGO has to be very professional and valuable to society so the government can see its effect. The representative for Shining Stone further adds weight to the notion of NGOs needing to create value in order to be considered by the local authorities. NGOs need to have the capacity to solve problems, the capacity to provide services. Otherwise, the government would not trust your NGO to do the work. It would appear that the NGOs that have evolved from small, localized NGOs to citywide service providers have done so through a process of sustained organizational momentum and perseverance, despite oscillating political climate towards NGOs. A representative of facilitators attributes his organization's growth to the notion that the Beijing authorities have been paying increasing attention to the NGO sector. The Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center details their commitment to their organization and programs in the context of obtaining NGO registration. For five years, every day, to meet every requirement, we did everything the government wanted us to do. Even in the spring of 2003, through Beijing's SAR outbreak, we continued to work for the center, which impressed local authorities. Finally, we satisfied all of their demands and received our NGO license. Such persistence has engendered not only trust between the NGO and local authorities, but also a higher degree of knowledge and epistemic awareness of the NGO in question. In this vein, to further enhance trust and build knowledge, Le Quen has implemented programs as needed by the Shanghai authorities. Le Quen believes that the NGO sector in Shanghai is trusted by the authorities. Local authorities, at least in Shanghai, have quite a good relationship with the NGO sector. There is quite an acceptable level of mutual understanding and collaboration. It is through working as directed by the local authorities and meeting the objectives of the local state that have generated such positive outlook on the part of Le Quinn's representative. The representative of the New Citizen Life Center in Shanghai also suggests that good relations between NGOs and Shanghai authorities exist, since organizations are able to reach out to different sectors in society and fulfill their needs, something that is often problematic for the authorities to achieve. Thus, for Le Quinn and New Citizen Life Center, two organizations that target migrant youth and women groups, we can deduce that being amenable to this local authority's requests and proactive with the constituents concerned are strategies that have been adopted to improve the knowledge level of local authorities. Direct contact and communications with individual officials is another tactic by which some NGOs, such as Beijing's Shining Stone, have fostered epistemic awareness of the NGO's capacity and collaboration with local authorities. While no promise of collaboration is guaranteed via this strategy, the NGO can nevertheless establish a direct line to the relevant government department. We would look for Guan Yuan local officials 
with whom we were familiar and approached them with the social problems we wanted to work with, particularly social problems that the government also wanted to solve. These various strategies for improving the knowledge of local authorities of the NGO sector and building trust have indeed improved the potential for collaborative relationships between the local state and NGO. A number of NGOs have further suggested that trust is no longer a major barrier to collaboration. Rather, they say that it is jiadu, or perspectives, play a stronger role. As facilitators note, local authorities do not necessarily lack trust of NGOs, but just have a different perspective of the situation. For Shining Stone, variations in Jayadu refer to the degree of familiarity that local authorities have of NGOs. If local authorities increase their knowledge of NGOs' perspectives and vice versa, and NGOs are able to increase their epistemic capacity, greater collaboration between both parties will occur. Section 6 Her. Section 6 The Growing Epistemic Capacity of NGOs In the classic formulation espoused by Haz, NGOs are generally seen as epistemic communities, that is, a network of professionals with recognized expertise and competence in a particular domain, and an authoritative claim to policy-relevant knowledge within that domain or issue area. Further, NGOs share a set of 1. Normative and principled beliefs, 2. Notions of validity, and 3. A common policy enterprise. For NGOs to become part of an epistemic community would suggest that the experience and knowledge they have developed has become important to policymakers and to the general public in addressing a range of issues. The interviews reveal disagreement over whether NGOs in China can currently be conceived as a community of experts in which their symbolic and interpretive powers can be meaningfully utilized and whether it is the role of NGOs to produce new knowledge or not. For some NGO representatives, such as the one from Shanghai's Green Oasis, the development of knowledge, whether it comes in the form of innovative projects or delivery methods of certain programs, is believed to detract from the goals of the organization. For other NGOs, such as the Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center, the NGO sector is not yet a community of experts, as NGOs themselves lack the requisite transparency. Tong Yu's representative is even more adamant that NGOs are not experts in their fields, claiming that NGOs are about mass awareness. China doesn't have an established NGO scene, even though she believes that the contribution of NGOs across the sector can in time lead the sector forward. While the diversity of the NGO sector is readily apparent, and the individuals who work for NGOs represent a wide spectrum of professions, for Green Earth Volunteers representative NGOs do not represent, as a whole, a group of scientific experts. For China Association for NGO Cooperation, a certain segment of NGOs can be considered as having expertise and inherent interpretive and symbolic powers that derive as a function of this expertise. 
For example, the Climate Change Action Network in China, which, co which constitutes a consortium of environmentally focused NGOs, fall under this category. However, for the majority of instances, and particularly if NGOs are considered individually, their experience is very low. Notwithstanding, China Dialogue's representative believes that NGOs embody a level of interpretive power that is not found within government ranks, since the former are potentially staffed by experts in the field and are increasingly important sources of information when big social problems break out. Whether NGOs in China should be responsible for the production of new knowledge or not, NGOs do have a vital role to play in the dissemination of information to the public. Green Earth Volunteers representative presents an interesting insight. Producing knowledge is not necessarily something that an NGO does, because that's not something we do. But reframing knowledge is something that NGOs can do and have definitely done in China, and I think they have been relatively successful in this. Perhaps due to coercive pressures, Chinese NGOs cannot fully achieve a mature epistemic community. However, if we accept the representative of Green Earth Volunteers' perspective, NGOs may be more effective as agents of change, not by pushing knowledge boundaries, but by using their interpretive powers in a relatively covert manner to recast existing issues in a new light and or shedding light on the under emphasized spectrum of political, economic, and social issues. Section 7. Final Words This article has suggested that the local state lacks meaningful knowledge of the NGO sector, just as NGOs have not sufficiently matured to become part of an epistemic community. Given that NGOs are relatively new to the social landscape in China, we postulate that the, that the Chinese NGO sector has not developed sufficiently to become part of a mature epistemic community in which their expertise or interpretive powers can be used as reference points by the state. In time, it is plausible that NGOs in China may become part of a mature community of experts where they can more effectively harness not only their material power, but also their symbolic, interpretive, and geographical powers. There are, however, a few reservations in this regard. We can prognosticate that it is not simply a matter of time before Chinese NGOs mature into an epistemic community. Rather, given the strength of the Chinese state and the existence of strong coercive isomorphism pressures, any production of knowledge outside of the state arena may challenge the legitimacy of China's party state, thereby becoming intolerable and ultimately hindering the development of NGOs. In effect, the existence of such structural forces rooted in the party state system and a regulatory framework that undeniably dominates local state NGO relationships strongly suggests that NGOs will have to stay one step ahead of the state. To do so, NGOs need to produce new knowledge and, more importantly, anticipate surprises or discover the unknown. For example, 
NGOs will have to anticipate the next major social problems and enact upon it with programmatic endeavors. When executing such a strategy, we can posit that NGOs will more likely gain the trust of state authorities through a best practices framework or following successful NGO models that will, in the end, lead to greater possibilities of collaboration with the local state. Moreover, a best practices framework will entice the NGO sector to professionalize under the auspices of mimetic and normative isomorphic forces. Of course, the scenario in which the state may attempt to compete and or absorb such innovative NGOs, akin to the Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center example in its early years, may be a reality. While the institutional environment in which NGOs are operating is slowly changing, thereby allowing greater participation of NGOs to address a number of social issues, the majority of the NGOs interviewed still perceive the state as having limited meaningful knowledge of the sector. Further, even if epistemic awareness is achieved, it is quite plausible that the state will develop a strategy of strategic ignorance to vary its degree of acknowledgement of an NGO depending on a pragmatic calculus that is based on the NGO's resources for social and welfare considerations. In essence, by factoring whether NGOs can utilize its material power rather than their symbolic, interpretive, and geographical powers, to supplement the local state's social and welfare provisions. The initial underlying reason for this theory is based on McGoey's concept of factual ignorance, which suggests that local government officials can utilize competing facts about NGOs, for example, beneficial to society versus potential socio-political threats, as capital. Part of this calculation involves mediating the uncertainty of forging working partnerships with NGOs presently. The second reasoning is the idea that strategic ignorance can be used as a defensive strategy whereby errors or problems can allude to an interpretation of evidence. For example, ambiguous nature of NGOs as they exist outside administrative structures and further in exonerate local authorities from engaging with NGOs. It will be prudent for future work to examine and measure the extent to which strategic ignorance on the part of the local state is used as a deliberate tactic to allow and disallow collaboration with NGOs.